0: This is the word of the Lord in Exodus chapter number 14, beginning in verse number five. When the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all these Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So Pharaoh harnessed his chariot and called up his troops. The Egyptians chased after the Israelites with all the forces of Pharaoh's army, all his horses, chariots, charioteers, and troops. As Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and they panicked when they saw that the Egyptians were overtaking them. They cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves for us in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? Didn't we tell you that this would happen while we were still there? We said, leave us alone. Let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. But Moses told the people, Don't be afraid. Just stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on dry ground. My great glory will be displayed through Pharaoh and his troops, his chariots and charioteers. When my glory is displayed through them, all Egypt will see my glory and know that I am the Lord. Then the angel of God, who had been leading the people of Israel, moved to the rear of their camp. The pillar of cloud also moved from the front and stood behind them. The cloud settled between the Egyptian and Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea. And the Lord opened up a path through the water with the strong east wind. The wind blew all that night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground with walls of water on each side. Then the Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers chased them into the middle of the sea. But just before dawn... The Lord looked down on the Egyptian army from the pillar of fire and cloud, and he threw their forces into total confusion. He twisted their chariot wheels, making it difficult for the chariots to drive. Let's get out of here, away from these Israelites, the Egyptians shouted, for the Lord is fighting for them against us. When all the Israelites had reached the other side, the Lord said to Moses, raise your hand over the sea again. Then the waters will rush back and cover the Egyptians, their chariots and charioteers. So as the sun began to rise, Moses raised his hand over the sea. The water rushed back into its usual place. The Egyptians tried to escape, but the Lord swept them into the sea. When the waters returned and covered all the chariots and charioteers, the entire army of Pharaoh, of all the Egyptians who had chased the Israelites into the sea, not a single one of them survived. But the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground as water stood up like a wall on both sides. This is how the Lord rescued Israel from the hand of the Egyptians that day. And when the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians they were filled with awe before him they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses so says the word of the Lord the band's going to come and lead us in our third song it's going to be a little different than normal you're going to stay in your seat and listen to these lyrics written in there. Are you with me? I remember the first time I ever started trying to read the Bible myself. I was like, who can make sense out of this? What is even the point of all of these words? But you know what I've come to realize over time is that the Bible does have a unifying theme. It tells one consistent story from Genesis 1 all the way through the final chapters of the book of Revelation. And that consistent theme that the Bible is talking about is one of rescue, deliverance, freedom, and salvation. God is constantly at work setting people free from the things that hold them back. This is the entire message of the entire Bible. Now, one of the greatest stories of rescue in the scripture uh, is the story of the Exodus. It's got a whole book of its own. It's like the Genesis, Exodus, second book of the Bible, right? And this story has actually been set to music in the song that we're highlighting in our worship playlist series called Egypt, all right? Now, both the book and the story tell of how the ancient Israelite people were enslaved by the Egyptians nearly 4,000 years ago, just like building pyramids every single day. And it talks about how God rescued them in the most dramatic way we could ever imagine. He parted an entire sea so that they could walk through on dry ground. They could move from captivity into deliverance. They could go from slavery into freedom. They could go from Egypt into the promised land. So we're going to dig more into Exodus 14, that, that long passage that I just read for you. We're going to dig more into that in a moment here. But I wonder if you notice as the band was singing the songs, or if you've heard and sung this song with us on Sundays before, if you notice that Egypt is written in the first person, not the second per, or the third person. Have you ever noticed that? Let's put some lyrics here on the screen for you, Okay. The, the song says, you stepped into my Egypt. You took me by the hand. You led me into the promised land. I will not forget you. And on and on it goes. Now, I am a world traveler. I like to get around as much as I can, but I've never been to Egypt. I've never been to the promised land. So what's this all about? Why is this song in first person if it's telling the story of something that happened 4,000 years ago? Well, of course, this story or this song, excuse me, It recounts what happened during the book of Exodus. It does talk about this historical event, but it's also meant to teach us that God didn't just dramatically rescue people thousands of years ago, God dramatically rescues people today. This wasn't something that just happened in history, it happens right here and right now. There hasn't only been one Exodus, my friends, there have been millions of Exoduses. And God is continuing to usher people out of bondage and into freedom every single day. The reason that this song is written in first person is because the the book of Exodus is not merely meant to teach you history. It is supposed to let you know that this is the pattern. This is the mission and goal of God in your life today, to take you from a a land of, of dryness, a land that's overbearing, a land that really just wants to grind you into dust, and it wants to take you and deliver you into something much better. So in Exodus 14, what we're going to see today, let me give you kind of an outline of our discussion. We're going to see what God has saved us from We're going to see what we are saved through, and then we're going to see who we are saved by. That's the three kind of questions that we're going to answer today. So what are we saved from? Well, first we see in Exodus 14 that God saves people from slavery. God saves people from slavery. You realize this, right? The Israelites in Exodus 14, they were saved from literal slavery. They were a conquered people. Uh, they were forced to work under brutal conditions, you guys, to serve an empire that didn't care for them one single bit, all right? They were impoverished, they were, in, uh, they were abused, they, uh, their women were violated, their children were killed, they had all of their autonomy and their freedom that was taken away, and the, the scripture tells us that the Israelites suffered this way for 430 years. Like, Can you imagine how miserable that existence would have been? How would you feel if you and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren were going to be subjugated, dominated, enslaved in that way? It really must have been awful. And of course, all of this was enacted by one man, an evil dictator that was known as the Pharaoh. And throughout the book of Exodus, it's interesting, the Pharaoh has dozens, literally dozens of opportunities to alleviate the suffering that the Israelites are going through. He can actually reduce their burdens. God gives him lots of chances, which is gonna be important later when we talk about uh, what ends up happening to Pharaoh and his army and things. God gives him lots of chances to do better to act more justly, to treat the Israelites in a more humane way. But every single time Pharaoh has the chance to do better, he uses it as an excuse to do worse. Every single time he could reduce their suffering, he doubles down and he makes their burden. He makes their life even worse. You guys, in short, Pharaoh sucks. Like He was a bad guy, frankly. He was a very bad guy. Now, what I want you to remember is what I said a moment ago, that the Exodus is not only something that happened way back in history, it is still happening in our lives today too. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Dan, you know, I'm not a slave of anything. I'm not a slave, and I don't have a Pharaoh in my life, although I do have a supervisor at work, and I think he might have gone to the Pharaoh School of Management, if you know what I mean, like he's a, whoops, but I'm not a slave I don't have a slave master, so I'm not really sure how this story applies to me. But listen, the truth is we're all slaves to something. Everybody on planet Earth, including yours truly, is a slave to something. It might be social media or the news media. People can be slaves to alcoholism or workaholism. You might be a slave to your depression or your need to always be in control of every little single detail. I know, no, I'm not describing anybody in the room here. People can be enslaved to money, to sex, to beauty, to adrenaline, to meth, to religion. You can be enslaved to any number of things. In fact, we are slaves to anything that we spend our lives pursuing, whatever we think is most important. Whatever we think will give us our happiness, our validation, our meaning, our purpose, we will actually orient our lives towards this one goal, and everything will be towards the end of achieving it or having that thing. And frankly, that means we're slaves to that thing. All of these little things are actually pharaohs in our life. They're just little pharaohs that dictate how you and I live. We read the story of the Israelites going, dang, man, it must have been so hard to be a slave like that. And it doesn't even dawn on us that we're kind of slaves today. We've got our own little versions of pharaohs that are saying, hey, Dan, this is what you have to do. This is just how your life is. You don't have any other choice. You're going to do what I tell you to do. I promise it'll be good for you if you just do what I tell you to do. We've all got these pharaohs. And what's interesting is just like the pharaoh of Exodus they will demand more and more of you over time and provide less and less in return. They're never satisfied. Pharaoh was never satisfied. Like you can read these stories about how like with the Israelites, they would go to him and they would be like, hey, listen, we really want to do a good job for you because you'll, you'll like kill us if we don't. Uh, but anyway, like we want to do a good job, but we can't make all of these bricks that you're wanting to make without straw. Could you give us more straw? And Pharaoh's like, tell you what I'm going to do. Not only am I not going to give you more straw, I'm going to take away the straw that you have. Now you're going to go out into the wilderness and find the straw that you'll need. And oh, by the way, you got to make even more bricks than you were. So Pharaoh is, again, like I mentioned, doubling down. He's making it harder, making it worse. And it's no different than the things that control us today. Over time, they get more demanding and less rewarding. Over time, they get harder and harder to please and less fulfilling to us. So we're all slaves to something, but even beyond that, Jesus tells us in the New Testament that we're all slaves to something called sin. We read in, in uh, John chapter number eight, verse 34, Jesus says, "I tell you the truth, anyone who sins is a slave to sin." It's what the Lord said. Now I know sin is like this old-fashioned concept, right? It's kind of out of step in the modern world. Like you telling me I'm a sinner, bro. What's up? Let's let's have some words. I understand saying that anybody is a sinner is kind of offensive. I get it. But sin, if you pause and think about it, it's pretty obvious to anybody. Okay? We all know deep down inside there is something wrong in the world that we live in, that there is evil and violence. There is injustice and and intolerance. There's hatred. There are things that are wrong in the world. And this is true on a global scale, but hey, it's also true individually. It's true in our hearts as well. There is injustice inside of me. There is evil inside of me. There is intolerance inside of me. All of that exists in me as well as out there. No matter how hard we try, it's like we cannot seem to consistently do the good thing or the right thing. That's all sin is. It's our, it's our proclivity to be selfish instead of selfless. It's our, our inclination to do the wrong thing at least as much as we do the right thing. It's like doing the wrong thing, team 10, seems to be easier Right doing the hard thing always takes a little extra work. You got to psych yourself up You need a good pep talk before you go do the right thing. That's because we are all slaves to our sinful nature It's just like we do what the pharaoh inside of us tells us to do We we, we're greedy or we're self-absorbed or we're mean or we want revenge All of that exists inside of us just as surely as it exists in the world around us but here's the truth God Wants to deliver us from slavery to sin in the exact same way that he delivers the Israelites from slavery to Egypt. Do you realize that? This is the whole point of the book, and this is the story of the entire Bible. We're going to continue this story in just a minute, but the band is going to lead us in the next section of the song. You're going to stay in your seats, and I want you to see if you can pick up some of these themes in the lyrics. All my but also spiritual slavery as well. And the second thing I want you to know this morning is that God's motivation for saving people is always grace. His motivation is always grace. Now, grace is a very important word in the Bible. It occurs in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is one of the central uh, pieces of Christian vocabulary that you need to know, all right? Grace simply means unmerited favor or undeserved kindness. It's God being nice to you even though you don't deserve it. That's what grace is. And grace is the motivation for God saving anybody, all right? Um, We've already mentioned the fact that the Israelites certainly didn't deserve the kindness that God was giving them by delivering them from slavery. Remember, just like while God is setting them free, they have been enslaved for 430 years. They have been praying for generations, God free us from the Egyptians. As he's freeing them from the Egyptians, they're like, Uh, "'God, we actually don't want this after all. "'Could you just send us back to Egypt? "'We were happier there. "'It's better to be a slave to the Egyptians "'than to follow you into the wilderness. "'We'd rather live with them than die out here.'" they didn't deserve this kindness that God was giving to them. I mean, it's just wild to see their attitude and the way that uh, they were processing this whole thing. And what's interesting is if you read ahead in the book of Exodus, you'll see that they carry this exact same attitude once they get into the promised land. They get into the place that God's told them they're going to go and they are still like, you know, I think we had it better back in Egypt. At least we we had like one little piece of bread way back then. I mean, we knew what the day was going to be when we woke up. We knew exactly what our schedule was. We had it better back then. I wish we could go back to Egypt, right? So the Israelites are not deserving of the kindness that God is giving to them. He is not freeing them. He's not delivering them. He's not saving them because they have proven their worthiness to him. He's doing it out of unmerited favor, kindness that they don't deserve Or haven't earned. As the Israelites were walking through the Red Sea on dry ground, like, I'm sure that there were a few Israelites that are like, What's up? Look at this. Go, God. This is what I'm talking about. But my guess is most of the Israelites are like, We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going (laughs) to die. They didn't have faith. They didn't believe. They thought they were going to be consumed. If they didn't die in the water, they were going to die in the wilderness. So the Israelites were undeserving but they didn't need to be deserving in order to receive freedom. God set them free. Yes. He rescued them. He delivered them by his grace yes. and nothing more. That's, right. That's because God's love is based on his character and not your behavior. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I keep saying this. This is like, uh, listen, I, I say this every time. I wrote this line. I'm proud of this line. I'm going <laughs> to preach this line monthly, basically, because it's the gospel in a nutshell. Yeah. We think God loves people... Because they prove that they're worthy of being loved. They do the right things. They follow the rules. They're nice, right? That's why God loves people. That's not true. From the scriptural perspective, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, God loves people because he is love because he is loving. You and I are not always loving. We're not always lovely. We're not always lovable, but we serve a God who is always loving towards his creation. And so when he delivers the Israelites, he delivers them because of his inherent love, his character, his nature. It's not based on people. It's based on him. Hey, the same thing is true when it comes to our salvation from sin. God doesn't save us from our spiritual slavery because we're awesome because we deserve it, because we follow the rules. We don't. We suck at following the rules. We're not very good at it either, okay? But God chooses by his grace to extend mercy, yes. love, yes. kindness, unmerited favor to every single one of us. He saves freely through his grace. So good, you guys. This, this like should change the way you view God. There there are a lot of people, they come to faith, and they come to faith still believing that somehow they need to earn it, that somehow they need to prove that they're worthy of what they have earned. But that is contrary to the good news. That is not why Jesus came to earth, and it's not what God has been doing for millennia. All right? What I love about this Exodus 14 is that although none of the people, or not all of the people were equally deserving, all of them were equally delivered. All of them were, they all experienced the same salvation. Even if they had faith or they didn't, they all experienced God's redemption and his love because God is a redeeming and loving God. It's also fascinating to me here that the Israelites, or God doesn't require the Israelites to do anything to deliver themselves from the Egyptians. You realize that? He, He doesn't say to them, all right, I'm gonna get you guys to the Red Sea. And then I want you to organize the army. I want you all to pull out your swords and then go to war. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, okay, Israelites, I've brought you to the Red Sea. Now you guys need to do your part. I did my part. Now I need y'all to do your part. So here's some building supplies. I'm not like Pharaoh. I'm not going to make you go get them, but here's some lumber and some nails and some hammers. You need to build a bridge across the Red Sea, okay? Build the bridge, and then you guys can leave Egypt and go into the promised land. He doesn't do that either. In fact, God does what he did last week with Gideon and his army of 300 men. You remember the conversation? He basically chooses to save the Israelites in such a dramatic and miraculous way that nobody can say it was anything but God, that the Israelites can't take a single ounce of credit for what's happening. He does not require them to work. He just tells them to watch. This is the template that God always follows when he sets people free. It's no different for us today. In Romans chapter number 4, verse 5, the apostle Paul says, people are counted as righteous not because of their works, but because of their faith in God who forgives sinners. So we're not saved because we're good people. We're saved because God loves people who aren't all that good. We're not saved because we follow the rules of the Bible. Most of us don't even know the rules of the Bible, much less follow them. So we are saved rather by God's grace, his unmerited kindness towards us that doesn't require us to do anything except to stand still, see the salvation of the Lord. God does for us what we could not do for ourselves what we are incapable of accomplishing because we're still slaves. We can't set ourselves free. If we could set ourselves free, we would have done it a long time ago. But culturally and individually, we are still held captive to our worst inclinations. So God intervenes. He steps into my Egypt. He takes me by the hand. He marches me out in freedom into the promised land. You know, this is one of the things that separates our faith From other religions in the world you know that right and i mean no disrespect like literally to any other faith that's not my point here but if you dig in to any of the other world faiths whether it's buddhism or islam or hinduism or scientology or anything like that what you learn is they teach that you will you will experience deliverance over time through obedience this is what they teach you work for it you prove that you have earned it or you deserve it. So over time, through obedience, you might be able to have God's favor and his freedom, right? So if you're Buddhist, you walk the noble eightfold path or you practice the five pillars of Islam. Uh, You spend enough money so you can go clear. It's a scam. I'm just telling you, okay? Any faith that requires you to give money in order to be saved, run, okay? (laughs) Okay? In all of these other faiths, you can experience some measure of deliverance. So they promise you some measure of deliverance, but it's always going to be accomplished over time and because of your works, because of your obedience. But the gospel is different. Christianity says something entirely unique. That is that your freedom, your deliverance, your salvation is not accomplished over time through your hard work. It is accomplished in a moment through God's grace. When God invades you, when he steps into your situation, do you understand that you are immediately freed from what has been holding you down? Immediately, in a moment, in the blink of an eye, you were transferred from Egypt into the promised land, from death into life, from darkness into light, from slavery into freedom. This is how our God works. He does it because he loves to see his children set free from the things that have kept them in bondage, even for generations. How good is that? Jesus put it this way. John chapter number five, verse 24. He says, I tell you the truth. Listen, there are a lot of people in the world that are not telling us the truth. Jesus says, I'm telling you the truth right now. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me Have eternal life. Not that they will have eternal life. Not that they have access to eternal life. Not that I've made it possible for you to earn your eternal life. He says, no, if you believe in me and the God who sent me, you have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. If we've if, if you've experienced this firsthand you know exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. there is life BC and then there is life AD yes. and I'm not talking about the calendar yeah. I'm not talking about the, the the calendar I'm talking about my life before Christ yeah. before God intervened yeah. before I was set free and I'm talking about life after life after death. The old me has died. The new me has been raised to life in the same way that Christ came and he invaded our world and he lived a perfect life. He experienced the death that we all have to, but he overcame it with life and he extends that same promise of freedom to you. Literally, God is so good that he will deliver people based only on grace, not on merit based only out of his character, not on our behavior, simply because he loves our foolish little tales, not because we are so lovable or loving. This is an incredible promise, and it ought to stir something inside of you. It really should. Hey, the band's going to lead us in the next section of Egypt, and I want you to praise God for this unspeakable gift
1: you me, yeah, the It's you
0: favor towards people by his grace. Lastly, we're going to see that God always saves through the work of a savior, always saves through a work of a savior. So you might ask the question like, why did God deliver the Israelites and judge the Egyptians? Why did he choose this people and condemn this people? Why did he show unmerited favor to them, but not to the Egyptians? If it's not based on behavior, then how come the Egyptians didn't get love and freedom and deliverance, they instead got drowned in the sea. All right. Now, uh, the initial reaction that most of us are going to have is like, well, it's pretty obvious. The Israelites are the good guys in the story and the Egyptians are the bad guys. right? Good and evil. God rewards good and he punishes evil. That's just the way things work. But it's not as clear and simple as all of that. Remember, I already told you the Israelites sucked just as much as Pharaoh did. They had their own issues just like you and I do. We're all equally guilty. We're all under the same kind of bondage as uh, as they were, all right? Not only that, but if you know the Israelites' story pretty well, this is like the second book of the Old Testament. There's a whole lot more of them to go. And by the time you get later into the Old Testament, you know what happens? The Israelites become slave owners in their own right. So they're just as bad as the Egyptians. They haven't had time to become as bad yet. Give them time, give them a little bit of money, give them a little bit of safety, and they're going to fall into injustice and iniquity just like every other civilization. So remember now, God didn't judge the Egyptians and spare the Israelites because the Egyptians were bad and the Israelites were good. We're dealing with a whole bunch of bad people here. Instead, the scripture goes out of its way to make clear, God saved the Israelites because of Moses, because they had someone who was going to intervene and intercede on their behalf. There was someone who would step in and do for the group, the whole, what none of them were able to do individually. So it was only because Moses stepped up and had a showdown with the Pharaoh in the plagues that the Israelites were able to go free. It's only because Moses was willing to rally the troops and say, let's head on out that the Israelites were going to get to the promised land. It's only because Moses had the faith when he was backed up against the sea to hear God's voice, to lift his staff, believing by some miracle that an ocean was going to part and his people were going to walk through on dry ground. It is because of Moses' and Moses' commitment and faith to God that all of the Israelites were saved. Right. God always works. He always saves through a Savior. In verse 15, we read this a moment ago. I don't even think we have it on screen. I just want you to think back to it, okay? There's a point. The Israelites are grumbling. They're complaining. We would have been better in Egypt. This sucks. Why are you taking me out? I, I didn't have sucks so many times in my notes, but I'm just having fun with it. Um, Why? Why? We would have been better off there. I'd rather be back there. Slavery was better than this, right? So they're having this grumble, grumble, grumble session. And immediately God speaks to Moses in verse 15. He says, why are you singular crying out to me? Tell the people to get moving. What's so interesting here is that Moses was never the one grumbling, Do you realize this? Moses never said, oh, I done screwed up. We shouldn't have left. Oh, what am I going to do? They're going to lynch me, God. I should have stayed there. No, he doesn't say any of that. Moses was the one who was always calling the people forward, trying to get them to follow God. And yet God speaks to Moses and he says, why are you complaining? Why are you calling out to me in this moment? This is so interesting and so fascinating. What we have here is a guy who is so close to the people That in God's eyes, he's a representative of the people. And from the people's perspective, Moses is so close to God that when he speaks, it's as if God is speaking. It is through him that God's power and salvation is going to be manifest. That's because Moses is what the Bible calls a mediator or a savior, all right? This is another very important Christian vocabulary word, a mediator or a savior. He's a guy caught in the middle. He's so close to the Israelites that even though he's not guilty of their sin, he's associated with their sin. And he's so close to God that even though he's not perfect like God and he doesn't have the power of God, it is through him that God's power is going to flow out. Moses becomes the man in between what God wants to do and the people who are fighting against him to get it done. Moses is this kind of mediator. And this pattern is present throughout the entirety of the Bible. You realize this, right? So God spares humanity in Genesis 6. Because of Noah's obedience, right? All of us are here because one guy was like, all right, the rest of these knuckleheads can do what they want, but I'm going to hear God and I'm going to obey, all right? God was willing to spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of one man, Abraham, because of his willingness to intercede on behalf of those cities. God was like, all right, we can save them if you'll do what I tell you to do here. God delivers the Israelites, the entire nation through one little boy named David against their army and their giant named Goliath, right? God always saves through the work of a savior. In fact, salvation requires a savior. If you're going to be set free, you need a liberator. If somebody is going to break if your chains are going to be broken, somebody's going to have to step in and do the breaking for you. So We read in the scripture, God saves through a savior. And in the Old Testament, there are all of these like examples. There's a template. There's a pattern that we see again and again and again and again. And then we see its ultimate fulfillment, its final resolution in Jesus, our capital M mediator. The one who is willing to step in, the one who is willing to deliver, the one who is willing to be fully and completely identified with humanity He's going to be identified with us and all of our sin, even though he wasn't actually guilty of the sin. Do you realize that? He wasn't guilty of the sin, and yet he's going to be identified with the sin. And he's actually going to represent God to us. He's the man in the middle. He is the savior and the mediator. And so we see this pattern that's begun in the early parts of the Bible, and it's carried all the way through to the gospels in the New Testament because God wants us to follow the breadcrumbs until we see the Oh, that's what we've been waiting on. This is the one who's going to finally and fully free us from the slavery we've all been in for generations, all right? And again, he does it not because of our behavior, but because of grace. There's even, oh, this is so good, you guys. All right, if you're falling asleep, just open your eyes for a sec. If the the lights haven't woken you, I'm like, what the heck is that? Um, Stay with me here for just a moment, because I promise you, last couple minutes of the message are about to get so good. There's even a hint of Jesus. So, you know, Old Testament, there's, the Bible is divided into two sections there's Old Testament and there's New Testament. And if you don't know, that's okay because nobody's born knowing the Bible. The difference between Old Testament and New Testament is Jesus. So, Old Testament is everything that God was doing throughout history before Christ came into the world, and New Testament is everything that God did in the world or everything God is doing in the world after Christ came into the world. So, we would expect that in the Old Testament, there would be no hint, there would be no like, uh, um, like any, any reference or idea that Jesus would be present because he doesn't come around until the New Testament a few thousand years later, right? Ah, uh, not so fast. Check this out. In verse 13, we can put this on the screen. In verse 13, Moses telling the people, quit freaking out, calm down. The Egyptians that you see today, they're not going to be seen again. All you have to do is stand still, see the salvation of God. You remember us reading that? Oh, this is so good. The Hebrew word for salvation is Yahashua. The Aramaic word, which was the language that the Egyptians would have spoken, the uh, Israelites would have spoken at that time, is Yeshua. And in English, the word is Jesus. Woo! Even the lights are going crazy. (laughs) Moses literally stands in front of the people thousands of years before anything like this is going to occur. He doesn't even have a clue what the words he's uttering mean, but the Holy Spirit knew. He said, stand still and see Jesus. Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the bond breaker. Jesus is the one who takes us from where we were to where God wants us to be. He's the one who steps into Egypt. He's the one that leads us by the hand. He's the one that marches us into freedom. Jesus is the reason. God always saves through a savior. And by his grace and love for his people, he's given us the savior that we need. John chapter 1, verse uh, 1 John, rather, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. We're told that Jesus' life and death were the payment for our sins. And not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. Remember, I told you at the beginning of the message the problem isn't just like with evil empires and systems and, you know, that sort of thing. The problem is with individuals. But the problem isn't just with individuals, it's also with evil empires and systems and cultures. And the scripture says that Jesus came to save and deliver, to rescue, and to set free both the empires and the individuals. Everything that is wrong, all the ills in our world really could be cured, those bonds could be broken if people would simply and merely surrender to the Savior. That's right. This is great news, you guys. This is so good. Because what it tells us is that we are not saved by the quality of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. So you might be here today and you're like, but Dan, I've got a million questions and I'm new to this and like, I want to believe, but I don't believe and it's really hard for me. You don't even understand. It seems so certain in your mind and I'm just not there, bro. It doesn't matter. You are not saved by the quality of your faith. The Israelites were not saved by the quality of their faith. They walked through like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. It doesn't matter. They were not all equally deserving, but they were all equally delivered. We are not saved by the quality of our faith. We are saved by the object of our faith. So if you allow a savior into your life, you will be saved. If you reject a savior, then guess what? You are rejecting salvation. If you reject the deliverer, then you will continue to be bound by sin and by addiction and by life uh, cycles that you cannot get out of because God has given us the Savior we need in order to be set free. It's not about the quality of our faith, because it has nothing to do with our works or our goodness or our deservedness. Instead, it all comes down to the good and loving grace of our God in heaven. We are saved by the object of our faith. So here's what I know. I know that there are those of you that are here today, and you're saying, I need deliverance. I need rescue. I need to be set free. Like I have literal kind of earthly pharaohs that are going on and dan i'm starting to realize that i've got spiritual ones as well that i've been bound and i want to be set free by the savior the mediator the one who will stand in between me and judgment so that i can cross through on dry ground to those of you that are here today what i want to say to you as we close is this There is going to be a tendency inside of you to say, okay, I just need to get there. I just need to get to the promised land. That's what it's all about, getting to the good place, getting out of the bad case. But hear me now. The thing that you're looking for is not ahead of you, it's above you. The thing you're looking for is not ahead of you, it's above you. The promised land is the bonus. Mm -hmm. It's the icing on the cake. It's like life overflowing that we get to live with Jesus every single day. But the real treasure, the real prize is knowing the Savior for ourselves. That's what changes everything. We, we sing and we dance, but we don't sing and dance just because we're in the promised land now. No, we sing and dance because we have a Savior who delivered us to the promised land despite the fact that we didn't know it. The thing you're looking for is not ahead of you, it's above you. And so you need to turn your eyes up to God instead of out always looking around you for the next thing that's gonna deliver you and make you feel better. It never will, but we know one who can. So I'm gonna invite everyone in the room to bow your head and close your eyes. And I wanna lead you in a short salvation prayer. This was literally the beginning of my relationship with God. This is how everybody gets their start. We simply confess that we need to be delivered and that we're trusting in Jesus to be the one to deliver us. So you might say this, God, today, I confess my need. I need to be set free from my sin. I need to be set free from my addictions. I need to be set free from my selfishness. So today I trust you as my savior, my deliverer, my liberator, the one who's going to give me true and lasting freedom. Thank you for this unspeakable gift. Help me now to live and walk in freedom from this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, have you just prayed that prayer for the very first time? Or maybe you prayed it in a new way. Uh, we want to encourage you to let us know, because we want to help. We want to pray for you. We want to give you some resources to the best of our ability. So you'll notice on the um, guest card that's in the pew pocket in front of you, if you'll just pull that out at the bottom of the card, there's an opportunity for you to mark a decision. You can check off, hey, I made a decision for Jesus. I accepted him into my life, or I'm restarting my relationship with God. Drop that off at the guest center, and that gives us something to pray for you about, and then we can help get some resources into your hand, all right? Now, if you're like, that's not me, Dan. I've been following Jesus for a long time. I already have experienced that freedom. I've got one final thing to tell you and that's this. This is a hidden nugget that a lot of Christians don't realize. That Old Testament and New Testament, every time the word salvation occurs in the Bible, it is not written in such a way that it's a one and done thing. Okay, that that the Greek language actually has this this, um, word tense that we don't really have in English. And essentially what it means is when God saves, he not only saves at one moment in time, but the salvation continues on from that point forward. It's something that happens and then continues to happen. The book of Exodus was not one deliverance. It was a generational deliverance, right? When God saves us from our sin, it's not one and done. He continues to save us every single day from our sin. Every single day, he is marching into your Egypt. Every single day, he's taking you by the hand. Every single day, he is trying to keep you from going back into the bondage. When that voice pops up in your head, it's like, boy, I had it better back in the day. Wouldn't it just be easier if I gave up this whole God thing? No, it wouldn't. God is still with you. And he is still marching you forward into the promised land every single day. So my challenge to those of you that are already believers is don't fight against that. Grab his hand. March happily into the future. The destiny, the heaven, the life overflowing that he has for each and every one of